like very, very much. His name is Yaakov Salman. Is there any years that Rebbe doesn't like? Yeah. I like many. This year I admire specifically a lot. This Yid Yitzhi, to me, it's, there's a lot of myths about what greatness is. A lot of people who feel, certainly, it's, I don't, not putting down ever a person who's Zaycha to teach Torah, a person who's Zaycha to learn in Kailo, but a person can work and be a great person. And it's dangerous when we, when we pretend not that way, because people go off to work and they have a feeling of failure. This is a Yid who who's a psychologist, who spends his time helping him, he's working, but is a Yid who's tremendously serious about Avodah Hashem. He learns in Tervedas every day, I believe he learns second, say that there. He's a person of Yaakov Solomon. He's very serious about Avodah Hashem. He's an idealist. He's a working man. He chooses, he's helping people, his work is psychology. But besides his work, he's also a very serious, sincere idealist. I've been over the years to Kruat Pass his son, Naftali, was a classmate of mine in high school, and his other son, we were Zaycha, learned in the Yeshiva, in the Beis Medish of Shmuel, learned the Beis Medish. I was Zaycha, he was in my shear. Yeah. In Waterbury. So I've crossed paths of Yaakov Salman numerous times. I have sent many Bachram to talk to him. He's a serious person. I love his balance. He knows how to take good care of himself, but he's a tremendous Evid Hashem. He shows great balance in being a person who cares for himself, you know, who's a balanced, healthy, grounded person, who's very serious about Avaydis Hashem. So over the years, I've like followed his writings. I've, I've read a lot of his writings over the years. He writes pr- pretty prolifically, and he's written a book, he co-wrote a book, What the Angels Taught Me, with um, Reb Noach Weinberg, beautiful safer. Reb Noach Weinberg, he authored with him. He's been involved in Project Inspired. Anybody's seen their videos and their stuff, he's been involved with them. <laughs> so he's, he's a big guy in Project Inspired. As a matter of fact, Aryeh Barnett, in the yeshiva's father has worked with with Rav Yaakov Salma on many projects. So he, so he, Rav Yaakov Salma. You met him. You met him, Rav Ezi, at all? You don't remember Shmuel Solomon? His son was in yeshiva. She's an extremely impressive person, Rav Yaakov Solomon. Very serious, Eved Hashem, an impressive man in the base Medish. Years ago, when I opened under myself in the base Medish, he was there. Wonderful person. The Kitzur Advarim is there are two essays I want to read to you. The second one specifically, the second one which speaks to me a lot about him, and there's two essays. He wrote many books, quite a few books. I've read many, I read, I don't want to say all of them, I'm not sure if that's true. I've read his works. He wrote a book that I read many years ago. I even got it from him. I don't remember. But I read it many years ago. This one I didn't get from him. He gave me the one from Noah Weinberg. But I read this book years ago. There's two essays I want to read to you. One is about Shabbos. That I want to read to you an essay about Shabbos. That I find intelligent. That I want to read to you. And a second essay that's more, that's, that's more what I want to read to you. But let me start with the first one. So if you please bear with me. We're going to do a little reading together today. Apologize before. And it came to pass. Stay with me. Good call. Good call. And it came to pass when the six days of creation had been completed that God bestowed upon the world a gift of mammoth proportion. 
Today I will rest, he said, but you are not tired. You cannot tire. You never will tire. This is true, he said, but I do not rest because I'm fatigued. I rest because I want my children to rest. You see, I teach by example. That is the best way. It will all become clear. And so it was that a day of rest was formed and its message transmitted for eternity. God who didn't need a rest, rested. I don't understand it. I don't understand, said this newest of days. So much was accomplished on each of the other six days. Light, water, vegetation, galaxies, the animal kingdom, humanity. What will be created today? Nothing, answered God. A creation of nothing? What a letdown. I thought the climax, Shabbos me, is supposed to be the most important part of the story. Oh, you will be. Rest assured, pun intended, you will be. But the other days appear to be far more significant than me. Things are not always what they appear to be. Just ask the moon. Not only will the other days be less important than you are, in my language, they will not even have their own names. You will be named Shabbos, which means rest. They will be called Yom Rishon L'Shabbos, Yom Shein L'Shabbos. Meaning the first day leading to Shabbos, the second day leading to Shabbos. You will become the focal point of the whole week. Okay, I do trust you, but tell me, what will people be asked to do on my day? Nothing. Again, nothing. No commandments, no instructions, no demands or expectations. Not really. The Jews will be asked to sanctify you, perhaps on some Concord grape wine, or maybe a Zinfandel, but that's really the extent of it. The Chiv Asay, the active mitzvah on Shabbos is Kiddush. Doesn't sound very festive or memorable. How about a lulav or a shayfer, at least some hamantashen or something? No, no symbol, no ornaments, just rest, said God. Don't get me wrong, pleaded Shabbos. It's not like I don't want to serve you, but I'm finding it hard to define my true identity, especially when there is not much to do. Can you give me a hint? fascinating. Well, let me put it to you this way. The world down there is not an easy place to live. So many distractions, so much to overcome, work, toil, and trouble. While all these terrestrial amusements are taking place, I am constantly trying to inject some tidbits of holiness to everyone's life. Not an easy task. So the way it works is that during the entire week, when everyone is working and engaged in earthly pursuits, they have to actively pursue this heavenly spirituality in order to get connected. But on your day, on Shabbos, the holiness descends easily and directly. The Jews can gain access to it by doing absolutely nothing at all. Just there for the taking. Their only job is to not get in the way. I think I get it, said the Shabbos. It's kind of like tuning into a radio station. If you're not exactly on the number, the reception is unclear. But as soon as you land right on target, all the static goes away. Well, the radio hasn't exactly been created or invented yet. But yes, this is what it's like. But there must be some instructions to help people avoid getting in the way so they can be in position to connect with the holy things. I'm getting to that offer, God. While there's very little to do for them, there's very little for them to do, there are a whole host of things not to do. Aha, explained the Shabbos. Instructions for avoiding the static. Exactly. Like what? Well, prohibitions like making a fire, seeding, sewing, baking, or creating a website. A website, what is that? 
Oh, never mind. The important concept to understand is that any work that is involved in creation of any kind is forbidden to engage in on the Shabbos. Because they need to stop creating on the Shabbos. Just like you stop creating after six days. Then they can feel almost godly. Exactly. Again, one question asked the Shabbos. Sure. If there's nothing they are required to do and so many things they cannot do, how will they find anything to do? Truthfully, many will while away the time, pretty much like they do the rest of the week, in a permissible yet unproductive way. They'll eat too much, drink too much, sleep too much, gab too much, and end up feeling bloated, yet empty and unfulfilled. But those who recognize the incredible potential of a day, which is totally devoid of occupational distraction and mundane pursuits, will absolutely fall in love with you. Shabbos was touched and invigorated. I suppose they could pray a bit more, spend some quality time with the family, visit with a lonely aunt or neighbor or a hospital patient, or invite someone over as no family of his own. They could read or sing or study about matters that speak to their hearts and their souls. They can adorn the unique beauty of the day by dressing in their finest clothes, eating some great food by candlelight, on elegant tableware, get into really meaningful discussions about life and purpose and self-improvement, or maybe attend a lecture or class that always seemed out of reach. They might even get a chance to contemplate. Now you're getting it, said the Almighty. When you think about it, about all the things you can do, you realize that these are endeavors that you could never quite get to during the crazy, hectic, tumultuous work week. It almost sounds heavenly. Shabbos, heavenly. Shabbos, my very dear Shabbos, you understand very well, but believe it or not, it is actually even more than that. It is what I call a taste of the world to come. It is my personal preview of what eternal life will be one day for those who merit it. When they experience a Shabbos in all of its glory and splendor, they will be catching a glimpse of ultimate and endless bliss. That's how powerful it can be. And it came to pass that when the conversation was over, Shabbos left the presence and descended into a rightful place here on earth. When she opened up the Torah and began reading, she understood even more. As promised, Shabbos with all its restrictions and without much direction and bereft of any symbol or emblem was mentioned more than any other single commandment in the entire Torah. She closed the book and kissed it. She was home. End of the end of the end of this essay. Gorgeous essay. That's the first essay I wanted to read to the Olam. There's a lot to think about. Unfortunately, we get so used to things we don't think. He asks profound questions. The mitzvah of Shabbos is to be Mikadeh Shabbos, and then it's devoid of a lot of mitzvahs. It's amazingly not full of mitzvahs, this precious day that's from the most important things in Yiddishkeit. How do we know? The Aveira for break, the Einesh for breaking Shabbos. Rebbeinu Yoyna teaches us. When we want to find out how important a mitzvah is, look at the Einesh for transgressing it. Not that the reason we keep it is because we're worried about the Einish. We're past there. But the Einish teaches us the importance. The Einish for breaking Shabbos is Chayiv Skilas, Chayiv Misa. It tells us this is unbelievably precious. One who forfeits this day forfeits his right to existence. 
unbelievably precious for a year this day. You hear the words? The merciful God, Hashem, who loves us more than any person in the world, loves us. Hashem says a person loses his right to live for being Michal Shabbos. Unbelievably precious day that without it there's no life. You don't deserve life. And on this precious day of Shabbos, amazingly, it's a day of don't do's. A day of holding back from and clearly setting up something we're supposed to do and connect to and in this precious article, in this precious essay, he describes this beautiful day of Shabbos. What's supposed to happen when you're devoid? It's fascinating the more empty people are, the less they connect Hashem, it's fascinating the less they can do with Shabbos. The more somebody's a connector. I told the guys about my father's friend, who if you saw him, you would see him as a modern man. If you look past by him, you'd say, oh, modern guy. He was a tremendous Eved Hashem. He's my father's best friend in this world. He was a, he was a tremendous Eved Hashem. He was Nifter a few years back. He's a tremendous Baal Tzedakah, a real special Yid. He would, fell in love with Shabbos. To the point that this modern-looking, very, very wealthy man did it for about 15 years. He didn't sleep on Shabbos. He stayed up the whole Friday night. He was schmoozing with his kids, learning a little bit. He wouldn't sleep. He didn't want to give up one minute of Shabbos. So he stayed up the whole Friday for many, 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 many years, just soaking in every minute. He was in love with Shabbos Kodesh. Yes, he was. That was his hobby by hobby. He was a doctor. He was into real estate. Yeah. So that's what... That was his hobby. That was his hobby. That was not his parnasa. Yaakov, did you ever meet him? Did you? His son, we were Zaycha that his son learned in the Yeshiva, in the Beis Medish. We were Zaycha. His son, a wonderful son, who knew all the Chesedish Rebbe's. He had a very special son who learned here. Another son who's in Kailo and Sharatayr in the Nachum's Yeshiva. Okay. Now, but I would like to read another essay. I would, li- I would like to read another essay to the Olam from if this my, the, the main one I wanted to read that was Nagaya, what I want to talk about is the second one. I would whet your appetite with the first one. I think was a highly intelligent essay. Did you get the first essay, Yitzhak? Yeah. Pretty amazing, no? So listen to this one. This one I like a lot. Please listen to this one. Wait, can I just pull something that Rebbe said? That, is, that, is that a principle that if you find the punishment is more severe, it indicates that that is the Hashem? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. That principle, Rebbe Yoyin is big on that, amongst others, that if you find the worse Einish, it's a mitzvah that's highlighted. Pay special heed to that mitzvah. There's something more serious about that one. I'm sorry? doesn't say... It but if Hashem says in Einish, they're loving, they're Malkus, Misa, clearly it marks it as Who are we to assume? Okay, next, the miracle of the matzah. The title of this one is the miracle of the matzah. Yes, matzah's involved. Jake, tell me what you think about this one. Okay, I want to read this. We're going to hear Jake. I want to know. Uh, 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 uh. Got the three markings. Uh, mm, or, um. Okay. You ready? I do not want you to read this. No. I'm serious. I do not want you to read this. 
unless you have at least once witnessed the remarkable scene of Jews baking matzahs before Pesach, describing the beauty, intensity, precision, holiness, and hullabaloo that goes on there is well indescribable. I'm actually... I'm actually going easy on you. To fully appreciate this story, I really should require that you drive up it up that you drive it up a notch and see this mystical and frenzied phenomenon with your own eyes when when it's in its fullest glory on the day before Pesach begins. Those of you who have been there on that day are nodding very knowingly as you read this. That is the very day very pious Jews, many of them belong to various Hasidic sects, return to the home of the hottest ovens this side of the equator for one last time to bake the holy matzahs they will use it to Seder that very night. Besides baking matzahs, they make special matzahs for the Lela Seder. And that's Erev Pesach, they bake it. It is intense. It is an endeavor of ultimate sanctity, since sculptuous care must be taken to ensure that the unleavened flatbread they are baking be exactly flat. Exactly that. Flat and totally devoid of any rising dough. And so it was some years ago that a very saintly sage and a group of his devoted followers rose with the sun that terribly busy morning and walked in mass in their annual pilgrimage pilgrimage to the local matzah bakery. Like surgeons in pre-op mode, they each upon arriving doodly scrubbed their hands and donned their ivory aprons before the hallowed operation began. Uncompromising cleanliness is a prerequisite for this mission and there is no margin for error or imperfection. Erev Pesach, they are baking their matzahs. Immediately, the platoon members assume their positions in the assembly line. Some blew up the flowers, other the water. Someone else mixed the two. Some divided into, up the doughs into rolls, others needed it. Someone else off to the side could be seen standing down the wooden rolling, standing down the wooden rolling pins, large and small. With the swiftest of motions, the circles of dough were transferred hurriedly, yet carefully, from the kneading tables into the tired furnace. Seconds later, they removed pure, crisp, and ready for inspection. As the chief of the order, it was the Rebbe who was responsible for the purity of the product as he painstakingly examines each matzah individually, usually many hundreds, to ensure that there are no folds or valleys which may be hiding even the slightest trace of a beginning leavening process. It may seem compulsive or even preposterous to the untrained or unsophisticated eye, but I can assure you it is very serious business. The matzah must in every way replicate the unleavened bread that our ancestors ate as they absconded from Egypt 3,318 years ago. So the matzahs, especially those chosen for Seder use, must be perfect in every way. Like sunflower shells in the mouth of an adolescent Sabra, the blazing chambers spit out those matzahs one by one in rapid fire that day. Immediately they were loaded into wooden rolling carts and delivered to the Rebbe. A small band of eager devotees quickly surrounded their headmen to see, no, to feel the holy selection process. Which would be the fortunate matzahs to be chosen for this year's Seder? The others would, of course, not be disregarded, but rather used for the remainder of the eight-day holiday. The Rebbe lifted each matzah ever so gingerly. 
But Yamin, listen to this. Some were immediately discarded from the alight pile. Two burned, two underdone. A teeny crease or a crimp, perhaps. Who really knew? The buzzing began when the Rebbe held one matzo it seemed like a full minute. Nurturing it, holding it up to the light, and then gently placing it on the side all by itself. Yes, this one would be taken into consideration. Soon after, another matzah was set apart from its associates and joined the pile of the chosen ones. Later, another was selected, and then another and another until many more than the necessary three now lay among those branded exceptional. It is here that the annual drama really begins. For it is here that the Rebbe really earns his stripes. You see, anyone can choose a nice matzah, but selecting the three most outstanding candidates, according to Hasidic doctrine, requires a very special mark of discrimination intuition and a connection with the sublime. The Rebbe has the best matzahs and he's going to pick out the best three. It was stage two. In the selection process that particular morning, as the Rebbe shut out the world around him to help attain a level of ultimate concentration, he seemed in some strange way to actually be reading the matzahs, turning them, twisting them, studying, scrutinizing, almost listening to them. But this Pesach was different than all other Pesachs. This year the Rebbe seemed especially confounded by his difficulty in selecting the best three matzahs. Finding the perfect matzah is, of course, impossible, as each one almost bears a signature or a so-called personality of its own. But the Rebbe seemed to be particularly anxious this particular day, as if not a single matzah appeared to be special enough to be selected for prominence. Who knows what holy thoughts or renderings were going through the Rebbe's mind as he sorted through the pile that morning. Who can imagine the sacred meditations and silent prayers the Rebbe invoked while sifting his way through the matzah of special merit. Meanwhile, the Rebbe was not the only one choosing Seder Matz that morning. Many of the entourage who had gathered to assist the Rebbe in his hallowed task also took the opportunity to bake, choose matzah their own Seder's use. They lacked the luxury of having hundreds of matzahs to choose from and couldn't possibly know the secrets the Rebbe knew, of which matzahs truly merited selection. But they did their very best. Judaism embraces the full kaleidoscope of membership, from the holiest of Rebbe's to the most unsophisticated simpleton, with equal regard. But few are able to approach the extraordinary wisdom and lofty understanding that allows the Rebbe's of the world to comprehend the fullest dimensions of matters such as these. And so there, off in a corner stood Chaim, simple, uncomplicated Chaim, who never distinguished himself in the study halls, never really shown above his peers in any particular category of life, just kind of blended in with everyone around him. Chaim, primarily a spectator of life, and he played the role well. Today was no exception. He watched the Rebbe and marveled. How can one man immerse himself so deeply in the performance of a commandment, he wondered. From where did the Rebbe's perseverance, dedication, and unyielding determination emanate? Oh, what I wouldn't give to have one of the Rebbe's matzahs. But Chaim was not one to rely on miracles. Fantasy is nice, but having one of the Rebbe's matzahs was approaching the absurd, and he knew it. So Chaim did the only thing he practiced could have done. He turned to Hashem, closed his eyes and prayed. Almighty God, you know how badly I want to fulfill your will, but I do know about cracks and crevices, hills and valleys, or the personality of a matzah. My only hope is that the matzahs that I will use at the Holy Seder will be the very best ones I could possibly have. Amen. 
Chaim was not alone in his prayer that day. Standing not far away was the Rebbe himself. He was only slightly familiar with Chaim, but he overheard this most simple and heartfelt plea, and he knew he was witnessing something unusually earnest. This time it was the Rebbe who marveled. He had just completing selecting his three matzahs, hoping that after all the work he had chosen well. But the Rebbe wasn't finished. He picked up these specially selected matzahs and cradled them in his soft hands. He then turned and walked directly in Chaim's direction. Dozens of eyes followed every step the Rebbe took and speculated where the Rebbe was going. There was no doubt he was headed over to Chaim. He, his prayer now complete, Chaim looked up and saw the Rebbe approaching Matzis in hand. Could it be, is the Rebbe actually coming over to me for what? What does he want from me? Indeed. The Rebbe stopped right in front of Chaim. Their eyes met, the Rebbe spoke. There were just seven words. Would you trade your matzahs for mine? The entire bakery was silent. Only the roar of the holy fire could be heard in this. Of course, said Chaim, half trembling and half elating. The two men then traded their matzahs. A tale, a tale of the sublime. Can we fully comprehend the drama that played itself out on that holy day? How, what can we possibly glean from this unusual saga? Somehow I'm sure that both men felt they had received the holiest matzahs possible. Chaim's prayers were answered. He really did get Reb, the Rebbe's hand-picked matzahs. But the Rebbe understood something deeper. No matter how much time and effort he put into bake and choose his own matzahs, they cannot compare to the matzahs baked by a Jew who knew a simple prayer and uttered it with ultimate sincerity. And after all, isn't that what Pesach is really all about? That is this amazing essay about the sincere simplicity of doing what's right and true. I wanted to read this essay. This week, we were talking about a girl, Dvorah Stubin, who in our mishpacha, we suffered a loss, Nuss and sister. We spoke about a person sincere and true, and the greatness of a Yid being ernst. A sincere tefillah, a sincere tefillah from the heart, a sincere life that's lived true to oneself. I thought this story in a beautiful way brings out, certainly it doesn't mock at all the greatness of a Rebbe with complicated cheshbonus and deep thoughts. But it also sings special praises to the simplicity of a Yid who in the most sincere ways is connected to Hashem. I picture the chauffeur blow, and there are two types of people blowing the chauffeur. Certainly a person's fortunate if they know all the Kabbalistic machshaves that a person can have, and those are powerful, never to be mocked. There are a lot of kavanais a person has. It says either the bull or the chauffeur should have these kavanais or the makri, the one who's calling out, could have these thoughts. A lot of different thoughts that it's chashav to have. But there's, there's, and certainly there's something called davening with kavanais, different shem Hashem with different kavanais, different times. And there are people who know these kavanais. They've learned the Arizal Shara kavanais and other svarim that give a person the knowledge of what to have in mind by different times Hashem's name is uttered. But I also want to highlight that all those things are never to be mocked. But what's also amazingly powerful, perhaps on part of that, is the simple Yid who has in mind the simple thoughts, the sincere thoughts. The Chayims of the world, who was not crazy sophisticated to know all the Kavanais, but asked Hashem in a real prayer, please make sure my matzahs are, are kosher and good. 
something beautiful about that prayer and the Rebbe switches his matzahs for the prayer of the simple Yid. So I wanted to read that beautiful essay. To me, in thinking about Devorah and repeating over the things we heard about her, there's tremendous to value. We speak a lot about in Yeshiva about valuing every person. Never look past somebody. Never look past the sincerity of a person. There are people many look past. There, and I think Devorah Steuben's life will teach us different things. But one of the things, don't look past somebody who might have all different challenges, emotional, she didn't, but if somebody has intellectual challenges, whatever challenges a person may have, that's from Hashem. But you don't know, perhaps, and don't miss out, things they're doing with simplicity and sincerity and realness. Don't look past it. In our overly sophisticated world, don't look past the sincere and the simplistic. Don't look past it. Be careful. Be very careful. I, I think I'm only giving an example. I don't want to use examples from my own family. We, we all have examples like it, but our families are what we know. My, my grandmother, I had an Oma, who didn't have the opportunity to go to Yeshiva. She went to a public school. And I think about her life, and it was easy to overlook her. She wasn't a brilliant scholar, but she was like this with Hashem. She was like this with Hashem. Really, really close. The way she prayed, the way she spoke to Hashem. Don't overlook sincerity. Don't overlook the subtle things of people that are honest, of a certain goodness that in the world might not be advertised, it might not be grand, it might not be celebrated in a very superficial world. I think like Devorah Stubin, this, this idea is something that should resonate in our yeshiva. Certainly we have Iluyim and brilliant guys and guys doing amazing stuff. Don't overlook anybody. Don't overlook anybody. And don't overlook anybody's yichaylas. Don't overlook any, every person has a tremendous place and a tremendous need for them. I've told the guys the story. It's not, it's not a simplistic thing she did, but it was from a more simple person. If anybody can picture the Mir Yeshiva in 1967, it's hard to fathom, but try to dream a little bit. The war against the Arabs, the mamish on the front lines of the Mir Yeshiva, the war by Kvish Echad, people who were there, I've heard from people who were there describe it, there were shots firing everywhere. Kvish Echad was the front line, right a five-minute walk from the Mir. Is that an accurate five minutes? Not an exaggeration. The Kvish Echad, six minutes. It's right there. Five minutes, less than five minutes. It's right there. Kvish Echad, behind the mirror. In the Shechun, in the neighborhood of Beis Yisrael. And the mirror was mamish front lines to the point that the top of the mirror yeshiva was taken off. The top of the building was taken off by a bomb. And the whole mirror yeshiva is in the bomb shelter. Now, their life is precarious. It's hanging by a thread. If the Arabs push the line past the Mir Yeshiva, about five-minute walk, if the front line gets moved over, every Jew, Pashtus, in its wake is killed. So if the line moves over, you can't walk out of the Yeshiva, you'll be shot by bullets or bombs. You're in the bomb shelter and just praying for your life. If the front line moves over five minutes, if the Arabs push it five minutes in, the likelihood the entire Mir Yeshiva is dead. Shem Yerachim. 
and the fight is going on and in the bomb shelter the Mir Yeshiva is learning and davening 24 hours they had shifts there were people who did, they had people up at all hours Rechaim Shmulevitz the great Mir Yeshiva is in the bomb shelter amongst many tzaddikim gedolim goinim and he wanted and he wanted round the clock learning that the Mir Yeshiva should be saved people are learning and davening unbelievable people who are in that bomb shelter describe days that are indescribable they describe days of inspiration of Kirvis Hashem that was like the likes of what they had never seen in their lives before or after people no my father was not there he had left a few months before but people are talking to Hashem crying tell him Tfilois Torah unbelievable Madragas my Sidi unbelievable after after Maish, after the mirror was saved, the great mirror Shiva, Reb Chaim Shmulavit said that the reason the mirror was saved in his estimation, there was a lot went on there, a lot of tefillahs by great people, a lot of Torah by big masmidim. Reb Chaim Shmulavit said that he felt the schus that the mirror was saved was now was a lady who was a, who was an ikuna. There was a lady whose husband had ran away from her, leaving her penniless. A bad, disgusting man who didn't take the responsibility to support his wife seriously, this disgusting human being, this despicable human being, and he left his wife in Aguna with the children. She worked in the Mir Yeshiva for many, many years in the kitchen. And Reb Chaim Shmulavitz overheard her have a conversation with Hashem. There's a true story. This is, lives in Mir Lur forever. This, this story. She turned to Hashem. She said to Hashem, I know you're angry at your children. We've made mistakes. We've done things wrong. But she said, Hashem, my husband left me for over 20 years in Aguna. My husband, this evil man, left me, didn't support me, didn't take care of me. And I tell you, Hashem, I am Michalim. I forgive him. I forgive his, what he's done to me. You, Hashem, forgive your children. That's her sincere tefillah that she uttered to Hashem in the bomb shelter of the mirror. And Reb Chaim Shmulavitz felt that of all the tefillah sent Torah, that it was her sincere tefillah that saved the mirror Yeshiva. So I say, don't overlook anybody. Don't underestimate sincerity. Don't underestimate somebody who, who means it. Who means it and ends the way means it. Never underestimate that. Somebody who gives their, who gives what they have. I want to end that there are many karbonis to bring to Hashem. I like to visualize, visualize the Beis HaMikdash, the hustle and bustle of the Mikdash, and people coming with beautiful karbonis. I picture Gavriel bringing a fest to carbon, geschmack, such an outpouring of love to Hashem. And then I picture somebody coming, he's waiting online, you don't see his carbon. You don't see his carbon. He doesn't and like everybody's online, they're looking like one thing, where's his carbon? The problem is the guy is very poor. And his carbon consists of a little flour. Cheap, cheap, cheap. He has hidden in his pocket some flour for his carbon. Other people have beautiful animals, festa carbonus. At the very least, like a little bit of a poor, you'd have some birds. But this guy in the carbon oil of Yoyrid, their levels, it's called an oil of Yoyrid. You can bring the rich guy, brings animals, medium birds, and the poor guy is a minchas ani, has flour. And online, he looks like a nothing. 
But it says on the Minchas Ani, the Pasuk says, Nefesh Kisakumichem. By every other carbon, it says a person who brings a carbon. By the carbon Mincha, the flower, it says Nefesh, a soul. Say a soul. Says Chazal, Mala Olav. On this guy, I consider it Kilu Hikriv Nafshay. I consider it as if he brought his very soul. Hashem says, don't mock the, the flower guy. It's precious. I consider it as if he brought himself. On the Ani. On the Ani, Hashem says, that one, I like that one. He's bringing flower. He brought his soul. He brought his soul. It's sincere. It's profound. It's deep. I don't push, bring flower. Don't bring carbonus. If you walk away with that, you miss the boat. And every truth has a danger. The danger of today is you speak about sincerity, so everybody will bring flower, not, not animals. Bring the animal, but find the sincerity of the honey. Be sincere, be truthful, be, be a sincere, real, authentic person. That's the, don't overlook anybody, don't overlook anybody, and don't, don't look with very superficial eyes what's grand, what's cool, what's powerful. You, you really don't get it. You really don't get it because what's powerful and valuable and precious, and this is to me is a, a lesson of Devorah Stubin, what's powerful and precious is the sincere. Avada, bring a lot, bring all the great things, but do it with sincerity. Do it real, honestly, without ulterior motives. Do things real in your service of Hashem. That's what I want to encourage the Olam. Le'ilu nishmas so all of us should be zeichet to find we should taka with all our great milus. We should have the carbon of the asher all our lives. But we should have the sincerity of the ani.